Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. Uh, me yesterday, but when are we going to get back to uh, what would be more familiar with expositional preaching? This would be some, somewhat more topical, and we're looking at the covenants. So I'm hoping to look at uh, this Sunday, and then Lord willing, next Sunday, try to somehow bring all of this together in a sort of conclusion as we've looked at this uh, study of the covenants. But um, let's read together um, for now Hebrews chapter 8, and I'm just going to read this chapter as we consider how the writers of the New Testament understood what was foretold in the old being fulfilled in Christ. So Hebrews chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault when, with them when he says, and he quotes Jeremiah uh, 31 here, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God And they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And we remember... 
each week, that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our Lord remains forever. Let's pray and ask uh, his help as we look at this together. Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, that uh, you are not a God who is affected by weather. You're not a God who is affected by, uh, Lord, physical ailments or restraints, that you are, Lord, forever the same, and we can draw near to you based upon the work of Christ, Lord, his finished work through his perfect life and his death and resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father and Lord, where he continues to intercede for us, where he has poured out the Spirit upon us, by which we also now cry, Abba, Father, and we give you thanks for this marvelous work of grace, Lord, that you have opened the door wide to come in and feast at your banqueting table, Lord, not only for the offspring of Abraham, but for all who, like Abraham, trust in you by faith, looking to Christ, and Lord, it is counted as righteousness. We rejoice in this blessing, and I pray as we consider, Lord, uh, a bit more the new covenant, as we think even about where uh, brothers and sisters may differ on understanding these things, I pray you give our minds uh, understanding and humility, and uh, Lord, by your Spirit, that even as a result, we would just uh, really be, uh, Lord, all the more um, just amazed at, at what you have done. And though it can be sometimes confusing and uh, difficult to, to fully grasp, we do pray that in it all we see the centrality of Christ and his finished work for us and the hope that we have uh, in him. And Lord, a new kingdom being established and brought in his blood. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I didn't really know exactly how to uh, title the sermon this morning um, because we're kind of we're going to be looking a bit at more of the the, the new covenant and, and and what it is as we kind of started last week. But then I also want to take some time this morning to consider some of the differences that we have among, uh, I would say, um, Christian brothers and sisters and, uh, and try to look at where some of those come from with our view of the covenants. And so it might feel a little bit more like a classroom at times, a little bit more technical. Uh, I hope that's not going to be, uh, my prayers have been that it's not just overwhelming of information, but really helping to clarify where some of these differences are and, and the implications of that, uh, as, I, as I think we will see. And uh, I imagine some of you, like us last night, got the... Uh, the, red, the amber alert on, our, on your phone about the power potentially being strained in Alberta. And uh, at least it came up on my phone that um, they're asking that people not maybe run excessive electric devices, space heaters and that sort of thing, because the grid has been loaded to the point where they were in risk of having um, some, some blackouts in spaces for a time or rotating the, the power outage. And uh, I had to chuckle in that they said, please don't charge any also electric vehicles in the message to restrain from doing that. And it's just the irony is sometimes so funny. But uh, I was thinking about that and how dependent we are on electricity and, and how much we are just used to the benefits that we, we get from electricity. Um, that it can, it can run our, our appliances. It turns the fans on our furnaces. Yeah, maybe it is a space heater or a heat lamp for the animals. We use it for light. It's for our electronics. Um, we, we are so dependent upon the benefits 
of electricity, and we've enjoyed those. Most of us probably have never experienced a day without um, some form of electricity. And it's difficult for us to consider what it would have been like prior to having the benefits of electricity and, and uh, in, enjoying all that we can do with it. And I think in some ways it's difficult for us as well to think about a time in which the full benefits and the, the, the glory of Christ and the new covenant in which he brought, him establishing this gracious covenant and, and, and we have enjoyed the, the clarity of the gospel of Christ coming into the world, of the resurrection and how all the Old Testament sacrifices and images point forward to Christ. And, and so it can be difficult for us to think about um, a time in which these things were very unknown and mysterious even to the, the general people of God in, as Israel. Now we know they, they did see in types and shadows and uh, there was even a sense in which um, Abraham, Jesus said, rejoiced in the day of Christ in John eight fifty six. So they, they, they did see something of what was to come, but certainly not experiencing the fullness that we enjoy today. And as the author of Hebrews is writing, he's contrasting the old covenant with the surpassing blessing of the new and really doing this throughout Hebrews, showing the supremacy of Christ over all of the types and shadows of the Old Testament. And he uses this language of a new covenant. And it's interesting that Hebrews here directly quotes from Jeremiah 31, 31, in foreshadowing the blessings of the new covenant. And last week we looked primarily at Ezekiel 36, where the new covenant blessings are described as uh, a coming day in which God's people are truly cleansed from within. The new covenant will bring about a cleansing of the conscience, not just a ceremonial cleansing through the blood of animals and goats, but a true forgiveness and a true cleansing of the conscience before God. And we saw the new covenant in Ezekiel 36 foretold a day in which the heart of stone would be taken out and a heart of flesh put in and a new spirit indwelling all the people of God. And as a result, they would be enabled, empowered to walk in the ways of God. These were things that were foretold in Ezekiel and clearly in Jeremiah. Jeremiah using this language of the covenant and of the, the new covenant in, um, as Hebrews quotes there from, from Jeremiah, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So contrasting that old covenantal system in its types and shadows, but its inability to cleanse the conscience and to really bring people into the, the, the holy place. Uh, it's significant that in, in Christ's completion of his work, the temple curtain was torn, separating the, the holy place from the holy of holies. And this indicating that the, the way into God's very presence has been opened through Christ, something that the old covenant could not do under Moses and the priesthood. And we know this is affirmed by other places in the New Testament. Um, we, we looked at Titus 3 a little bit as well, a, a wonderful passage that also affirms that in Christ, the promises that, that were foretold in the Old Testament were fulfilled of this new covenant, Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And, and all of that imagery of Ezekiel and Jeremiah is, is, is brought into that by Paul, this washing of regeneration, a true renewal in the Holy Spirit and being raised up to life, given the Spirit of God to dwell within us. And all of this comes through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this why Hebrews tells us that Christ serves as the mediator in verse 6, uh, is, is better because it's enacted on better promises of this true cleansing, of this true renewal of God's people. Another place, um, Paul describes the, the fulfilling of this new covenant as well as Ephesians 1, seven. He says, speaking of Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so this is just throughout the New Testament. They understood that in the coming of Christ, he is bringing the promise, the fullness of this covenant blessing And in his dying and in his resurrection, he enacts all of these blessings that Ezekiel foretold, that Jeremiah foretold, that that the prophets and the uh, saints of old were trusting in and looking forward to. This is a reality that Christ has brought. And the writing of the law upon the minds of God's people, Paul would describe it as not simply in written on stone, the law, but now written by the Spirit on the flesh of our hearts. This is the reality which Christ has accomplished. So I think a passage like Hebrews 8 should really leave no question in our minds that Christ has brought this and accomplished these very things that were foretold. And the saints were were longing for this day. And I think there's a sense in which all true Christians affirm this reality that Christ is the center. Christ is the one who's accomplished these blessings. Through him, we have forgiveness of sins. Through him, we draw near to God. Through him, we see the, the, uh, the, the promises of even a, a new heavens and new earth established. And so we can rejoice in that common ground of Christ accomplishing this. But we also need to realize that, especially as we come to a passage like Hebrews 8, that there are very different understandings on some aspects of this. And perhaps we could represent some of those differences with questions like, well, why do some denominations baptize infants and others don't? Why do some denominations emphasize the study of the Old Testament and others do not? Why do some use the Ten Commandments and still others would not see the Ten Commandments as really having any bearing upon the new covenant people? Um, Why do some believe in a secret rapture of the church and others don't? Why do some people place a lot of emphasis on the nation of Israel and and what's going to happen with the nation of Israel, ethnically speaking, and others don't put that same emphasis on it? Uh, Why do some emphasize the effects of Adam 
and the fall upon us and all of humanity. And others don't really talk at all about the effects of Adam. And I think these questions um, actually are all answered based on how you understand the covenants of God fitting together and especially how you understand the realities of the new covenant being brought in Christ. And as I said, I know this can get very technical, but I do think it's helpful to consider where some of those differences that we are aware of, where they stem from. Um, It really comes from, if you think of it in terms of a lens, you know, if uh, a few, um, last week maybe we took, my wife wanted to go see this show, um, Migration, which is kind of a anime movie about these ducks that are migrating. Of course, because there were ducks involved, my wife really wanted to see the show with the boys, and they had never seen a show in 3D, so we decided to, okay, we'll go and and, uh, we'll watch the show in 3D. And, of course, in order to experience the 3D effect, you have to put on the glasses, right? And the glasses, as you look through the lens, it makes everything kind of pop out, and it's an interesting experience. And and so, in a sense, we we could think of these differences as people wearing a lens through which they're going to read a passage like Hebrews 8 or just understanding the covenants in general. And depending on the lens in which you're wearing, you are going to interpret some of these things differently. And that is going to affect a whole host of other things over here. And and I think sometimes we look at things like, okay, end times, for example. Why are some people obsessed with the secret rapture of the church and other people kind of mock at it? You know, even... um, Paul Washer said the only thing left behind in the Left Behind series was the Bible. (laughs) And I had to chuckle at that comment because I would somewhat agree with that sentiment. And whereas others really are convinced this is how it's going to play out. Well, we, we see the differences, but I think we sometimes struggle to understand the root from which those differences come. And so I want to just take a moment to consider some of those differences. And I found a few Um, little circle charts from a website called 1689 Federalism. So 1689 being the uh, the confession of faith that we use, the Baptist confession. And they put up a couple charts that I thought were very helpful in just highlighting some of these differences. And uh, just to look at that a little bit, and then I'll try to to bring it all together because I've had quite a few people ask me throughout this series what, are the, what is the dispensational view? How, how do they differ on your understanding of the covenants? Or why is there a difference in the Baptist from the Westminster Confession? Where do these differences come from on understanding these covenants and how God has brought them to fulfillment in Christ? So as kind of an aside, I want to just uh, look at a couple of these. There's actually a third one I, I just, we won't look at because we don't have time. They have a third one on new covenant, new covenant theology. So... What we've been talking about would, would fit into the category of um, covenant theology or sometimes called federal theology because of the understanding that God establishes these covenants through federal heads, through a representative, through Adam, through Abraham, through, I mean, Moses is with the people, but David certainly as a federal head, and then Christ of the new covenant standing as the federal head through which his people are blessed. So, Within covenant theology, you have the credo-baptists and pedo-baptists. So, you know, those confessional baptists, those that would hold to the Westminster. So there's a difference there. And then you have another difference with dispensational views. And you have another, which is new covenant. We just simply won't have time to look at anything too much on the new covenant side this morning. But I want to just look for a moment at this one. 
because it's, it's very interesting. So um, I think these are fairly self-explanatory. In the middle, you have the common area of understanding, and then you have the differences on the side. So on the left side, you have Credo Baptist, which would be you know, essentially what, what we're holding to as confessional Baptists. And then on the right would be more in, in line with the Westminster Confession, so the Pado Baptist. And what really helped me with this is when we talk about terms with brothers and sisters, a lot of times we're using the same language, but we're actually meaning slightly different things. And I've especially found that with the, with the two um, Credo and Pado Baptist, because I've listened to a, a bunch of different debates. I've tried to read from different sources. And it can be very frustrating because on the one hand, it's like they're saying the exact same thing. I actually don't see, uh, I don't hear the difference. And this helped me just to understand there is some difference in defining of terms. And, and I think that's important to, to understand. So areas, of, areas that we, we would agree on, and you see this in the Confessions of Faith with the Westminster, say, and the, and the 1689, they are very similar in many ways. Um, they both would affirm that salvation comes only through the covenant of grace. This is what Christ has accomplished. This is what the New Testament testifies to. That salvation is only found in Christ alone. And, uh, and I, I give thanks for that. And I think this is where you see a lot of unity. You have um, a John MacArthur preaching for an R.C. Sproul or you know, Steve Lawson preaching in Ligonier's conference because they are agreeing on the centrality of Christ and he as the only means of salvation for believers. In fact, in uh, chapter 8 of our confession, uh, section 6 on Christ as the mediator, it says the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation. So, um, well, I'll just finish it. Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit of it was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices that revealed him and pointed to him as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what is that saying? It's saying that Moses and Abraham and Adam find salvation in Christ alone. And they were looking forward to the coming Christ by faith, trusting that God would redeem them and cleanse them of their sins. And this was something Christ accomplished at Calvary. The, 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 the effect of it was actually accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. So they were looking forward to it and trusting in it, though it was yet to come. And, and, and the, the, the Reformed uh, Baptists and the covenant reformers uh, agreed that it is in Christ, it is by grace through faith alone that we are saved. And so uh, you know, we can rejoice in that. Um, also, they would both agree on the bottom prelapsarian covenant of works. Just a fancy way of saying they both would see to um, prior to the fall, there being a covenant with Adam and that covenant uh, being defined as a covenant of works. And as I said, I think these two probably have the most in common between any of the other positions. And you see that in the Confessions of Faith. And I said, I said again, as, as we know, this is why we have so much good fellowship uh, among these two lines. Now, where are the differences then? And we have to realize this is a fairly broad brush. So there's going to be <laughs> different within each side. I don't want to you know, put everyone necessarily in the same group. But generally for the Baptists... When we talk about the covenant of grace, 
we generally are talking about the new covenant. And, and so the, um, they're, they're basically synonymous terms as far as the, the credo-baptist position goes and, like I said, the 1689 confession. And so because of that, the covenant of grace membership are those who are, are born again, who are grafted into Christ by faith, who experience the blessings of the new covenant that we've been talking about. Those are the members of the covenant of grace and this is why, for Baptist uh, folks, that we would baptize upon a profession of faith, because we're linking that uh, membership in the covenant to regeneration and to being saved uh, by grace and confessing up, uh, publicly. So that's where that root, I, I think, is. Um, now, the difference on the Pado-Baptist side there, and, and this, this is what I mean where you have the same terms for covenant of grace, covenant of grace, if you ask a you know, Reformed Baptist person, do you affirm the covenant of grace? Yes, absolutely. Okay, ask Cato Baptist friend, do you affirm the covenant of grace? Yes, absolutely. Like, okay, well then we agree. Well, it's actually, but we're, we're actually defining it slightly differently. So in the Pado Baptist view in the Westminster, um, the covenant of grace is, is seen as the, well, the covenant of works with Adam and then the covenant of grace enacted in, in the garden um, and operating throughout so they would, they would generally say that the, all the other covenants with, with uh, Moses, with Abraham, um, with David, these are administrations of the one covenant. They are ways in which God has um, delivered the covenant of grace to his people in different times. But it is all fundamentally the same covenant. And I try not to misrepresent there. So because of that difference... Um, then the membership of the covenant of grace would be made up of a mixed people of both regenerate and unregenerate. And, and, and this is why then they would generally baptize the infants based not upon the infants saying, they're not necessarily saying that the baby is, is born again, but because of this covenantal identity in the covenant of grace, they are given the sign. And, and so we, we don't want to misunderstand and say, well, Pado-Baptists believe that they're saving their children by baptism. That's not the position. It's a different understanding of the uh, membership into the covenant of grace. And so the sign is administered differently. And I think it's helpful to, to see that um, distinction there. What are, uh, who are some, uh, sometimes it's helpful, who are some um, teachers that we would you know, look to or read today that would hold to... Um, the Baptist view, well, certainly we would look at someone like Bodie Bauckham, um, Paul Washer, Albert Moeller, Charles Spurgeon. These were men that would, would have held to and do hold to the confessional Baptist understanding of these things for the most part. Like I said, there's some, there's some differences uh, in there too. On the Pado-Baptist side, we would look to men like R.C. Sproul, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Sinclair Ferguson, Doug Wilson, Alistair Begg, many of these men would be holding to the Pado-Baptist understanding of the covenants. And so they're going to land differently on an issue like infant baptism, um, their understanding of, of some parts of the Old Testament and how they, they fit together. And I think what makes this especially hard is that there is so much agreement and many of the same terms that both affirm and so when you talk to one another or when you hear someone teaching, you're like, okay, that, that's language I would use. That's things I would say. But there are these differences. And I think uh, a chart like this helps. So uh, I know that's a lot of information. And, and I'll, I'll put up a link. You can look at these later as well at home perhaps. 
But we're going to move on to the second one just real quickly and then try to, to wrap this up. So the second one is, is uh, like I said, far more different, actually. So this is comparing the, the, the Baptist understanding of these covenants and, uh, and comparing it to that of what we would call a dispensational view. Now, don't be too intimidated by a term like dispensational. It it's just simply means uh, a span of time or an era. Um, it's a word that we find in the scriptures and, uh, and so we all agree there's a progression of revelation. There are different seasons of, of God's work in history. But for the dispensational, they really don't want to bring any clear unity to all the covenants from Adam to Christ. They very much compartmentalize these covenants and see in each covenant. So Adam, uh, they wouldn't even really acknowledge a covenant there. Um, these are different dispensations, different eras, different blocks of time that are quite disconnected and uh, don't actually have a lot of unity. Now, this would be actually quite a classical view of dispensationalism. So um, uh, you have someone like John MacArthur who would say he's a leaky dispensational. And they're like, what does that even mean? Um, so he wouldn't hold necessarily to the classical view in all of its parts. But there are certainly a lot of things someone like John MacArthur would certainly <laughs> affirm. Um, so areas in common, and again, I think we can look at this and we can rejoice in some of these common areas. They affirm the foundations of the faith. They affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. They affirm that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And they would affirm, the, for example, the five solas that you know we have uh, the by, by grace alone, um, through faith alone, uh, scripture alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. They, they would affirm those things. And we can give thanks for that. They affirm a distinction in, in the way that Israel was started from that of the church. I think that is more getting at the fact that Israel uh, had a, an external emphasis in the way they were constructed and established. Where the church is first an in, inward reality that, that works itself to the outside. Um, so there's some agreement there. Differences on the Baptist side on the left with a dispensational view. The first one is, is uh, again, a little intimidating. The hermeneutic, um, it's kind of hard to see. Sorry, grammatical, historical, and typological hermeneutics. So what, what in the world does that mean? Well, hermeneutic is just the, the science of biblical interpretation. So how are you understanding the scriptures? How do you, how do you come to the word of God and, 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 and extract from it biblical truth um, that would be your hermeneutic, how you're going to understand what the Bible means. For the, the Baptist, and, and also the Paedo-Baptist would agree with this, there is, yes, a historical grammatical understanding. We look at the prophecies of old, we look at the uh, covenants of old, and we see that they apply in that immediate context to a specific people. Yes, we agree with that. But we would also go on to say that they serve typologically as well. So not only do these covenants relate to Abraham and his descendants, to Moses and the people of Israel, to David and his descendants, they do have immediate context and application there, but they also would, would reach up above themselves and beyond themselves, and they're, they're pointing also forward to Christ in a typological way. And so Christ is the reality, we would say, to which all these covenants are pointing. And, and, and that's just a, and I would say, um, and you read the New Testament authors, even like we are reading here from Hebrews, um, 
This is how the New Testament authors understood the Old Testament. They understood it typologically. They understood that, that Moses, even he's saying the tent that Moses was to build, it wasn't primarily about that tent and the priesthood and all of these sacrifices. That was to point forward to the reality which Christ would establish. So that's typology. And we, you know, generally, and I, this say this of myself, um, I, I can't read of Adam and, and all that's happening there without also making a connection to Christ as the new Adam uh, language that Paul uses. He was a type of the one to come. These are shadows. So this is, this is typology. And um, that's a key component for the, I would say, the reform position, understanding these covenants. Whereas on the dispensational side, they would reject a typological hermeneutic. They would not want to look in the Old Testament and say, oh, Ezekiel's talking typologically about the new covenant and the Gentiles being brought in and receiving regeneration. They would maintain those things for Israel in a literal um, uh, way that it was initially historically understood. So I've heard um, John MacArthur you know, uh, go, go off on this as well. Someone asks him about this question in a question and answer period. He will go off on the, the typological abuse of, he would say, the, the, the Baptists or um, the Reformers. And he would say, no, we're holding to a literal interpretation. And so that's why when you come to issues of Israel, as you can see um, for the Baptists, um, we find not only this hermeneutic, but the new covenant, we would say, is made with the church, the true Israel of God. Language, again, that Paul uses, who is the true Jew. He is one who is inwardly, not a circumcision of the flesh, but of the heart. So we're understanding the church as, as new covenant Israel. Um, and, and so we would see a unity of the covenants in that sense. All of them are looking to Christ. National Israel, we would say, was a type of the church to come. So in Israel, God is, 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 is giving a picture of the reality which will be Christ and his church and going into the eternal state, um, the church is the Israel of Old Testament prophecy. And the moral law continues as well as consistent throughout all the covenants. So these are things that I think for some of you, you're probably like, well, yeah, that, that's what I understand. That makes sense. For others, it may be, well, this is all very new and I haven't thought about it. And that's okay. I just wanted to try and help show where some of these roots are. Um, but obviously the issue of Israel is a big one. And you see on the dispensational side then the differences. Uh, I already mentioned they reject the typology view. Um, they, this is fascinating to me. For the classic dispensational, they would see the new covenant is still a future reality with Israel. And I read it. I was like, I, I just can't get my head around that perspective that we're still waiting for the new covenant to be established with a future Israel in the millennial kingdom. Uh, it's like, wow, I, I don't know where that, where one would get that. But uh, that would be the classical view. Um, Israel and the church remain two distinct peoples of God. So because they take this literal uh, interpretation, they never really bring the church and Israel together. For the dispensational, the church and Israel are like these two streams that flow throughout history. And this is why they are, are very interested in what's happening in Israel today. And they're kind of waiting for things to come into place according to their timeline for Israel to be reestablished as a, uh, a powerful state. And then Christ to take the church out of the way in the rapture so that he can deal with Israel again on the earth. This is all coming from a dispensational view. Um, 
So they would um, reject the moral law as really having any... In fact, they would reject most of the Old Testament unless it has been reinstated in the New Testament. And, and that's something you'll see as well. Um, and re- we reject the covenant of redemption uh, as well. And so who are teachers that would hold to these things? Someone we might be familiar with. Um, initially, I think Schofield. You may have heard of the Schofield Study Bible. He was one who really propagated this view and this understanding of redemptive history. Uh, Ryrie. You've probably heard of Francis Schaeffer, apparently held to some form of dispensationalism. Um, Tim LaHaye, obviously, the Left Behind series, you know, that is kind of flowing out of this view. Um, John MacArthur, though, like I said, he would, he would not hold to all of these points of a classical view, but and many of them he would. Um, we got the boys, the John MacArthur uh, study Bibles, and which is a great study Bible. I don't want to, to talk it down, but it is interesting. If you read in the Old Testament, anything dealing with Israel... In his study notes, it's always pointing to the millennial reign of Christ. It's always a future reality for Israel. And then if you read maybe in the Reformation study Bible, they're going to be like, no, this is a a pointing to the church and what Christ would accomplish in the new covenant with the church. And so a big difference there. Um, I think you you kind of start to see why these things actually do matter and and why they have important implications. So... um, I think we'll, we'll uh, leave that there. Uh, Micah, you can turn it off. Thank you. So I hope that's not just completely uh, overwhelming. I, I, like I said, had quite a few people asking me about some of the differences and where they come from. I think especially um, in, a, in a group like ours, we would really wonder about some of the dispensational things that we're hearing and seeing and reading. You know, I still love listening to and reading someone like John MacArthur, but you do need to be aware that he's coming from a dispensational view on some things, and so you might find yourself scratching your head and thinking, well, that's not what uh, I heard the pastor say or <laughs> what, what I was taught uh, growing up. That's where the difference comes from. So what do we do with, with all of this information? How in the world do we um, conclude after this? I, like I say, don't want to overwhelm you. It is a bit overwhelming. I certainly, in going through this study, uh, have been wrestling and struggling, trying to... Un- get clarity myself on what I believe the, the scripture is teaching and, and holding forth. And, and, uh, and, and we can certainly look to different confessions of faith. We can look to teachers to help us. But I think, first of all, in response to this, we do need to rejoice in the common ground that we do share across these different views. Um, namely, at the center of redemption is the reality of Christ. And whether you go to a Grace to You uh, conference or a Ligonier conference or, uh, you know, um, Southern Seminary with Al Mohler on the Baptist side, you're going to hear the centrality of Christ, of the sufficiency of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and holding Christ forth as the means by which we are reconciled to God. They are, they are, are solid on that truth, and, and I think we need to give thanks to God for that. And not grow discouraged at the disunity, which can be discouraging, but to rejoice in that there is so much we agree on and that we can work together in uh, with the furtherance of the gospel. And and we can also um, realize that these are secondary issues as far as the Christian faith goes. These men that would differ on these points are still brothers in Christ. And I think we want to also affirm that. 
that we might differ on our understanding of the covenants, might differ on our understanding of Israel and the church and how this will play out over time. But we need to be careful about writing someone off as an unbeliever and, and, and calling them you know, maybe a heretic or something like that. Um, these are not issues that would make us a, a non-Christian, that would put us outside of the body of Christ. There can still be a fellowship as brothers and sisters, though we would differ. And I think we can learn from one another. Um, one of the questions I sometimes think is, Lord, why, why so much difference? Why so much disunity? We're reading the same Bible. We have the same Spirit of God living within us. And uh, part of the answer is simply that the, the perfect has not yet come. But also I think the Lord uses uh, one another to sharpen and to challenge. And there are tensions in our understandings to also protect error on both sides. Both sides are prone to error in one form or another. And I think sometimes that tension is there to help us be uh, balanced in our thinking. So we should rejoice in the common ground. Secondly, in our response, we should also be humble as we consider these differences and uh, the centrality of Christ. We should be gracious. Um, I think we should consider these things with an open Bible and in, in prayer to God that he would give us insight, he would give us understanding. Paul told Timothy to think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding. So, so we humbly uh, come to the word of God. We humbly read and learn and strive to understand, but not in an arrogant, um, prideful manner, but realizing that there may be things that I don't understand rightly and I need to be instructed from my brother or sister. I need to, to be uh, continually in the word that my mind is being renewed by it. As James said, we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I think there is also, thirdly, a call to us to understand. Um, we don't always want to be debating. We don't always want to be you know, finding ourselves arguing with one another. But I think there is a call for us to, to strive to understand. One of the, the things of our generation is, and I'm saying this of myself as well, is that we generally are intellectually lazy. Um, I don't necessarily enjoy having to dig into the scriptures and into these matters to retrieve these truths for myself. I would rather just read it and have someone tell me what the right interpretation is. It's hard work to, to really dig into the word and to ask these questions. And, 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 and maybe it's getting a, um, you know, some, some resources to help in the study of God's word to, to you yourself digging into it. Um, there are some great podcasts and great resources that can help. But I think we need to press into this issue because the implications are important. And, uh, and yet we don't expect perfect unity either. We, we know that on this side of glory, there will be differences. Um, I would love there to be you know, some kind of uh, unity somehow uh, on all of these points. But I think realistically, that's not something we're going to experience on this side of, of Christ's return. There will be struggle. There will be disagreement. There will be the need for for. Uh, sharpening and challenging one another. Paul also told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And, and that's a call that goes out to each of us to desire to handle the word of God rightly. And that means that we have to study, we have to listen, we have to think, we have to be challenged on our view of God, of his word, of his covenants.
And lastly, then, let us abide um, in the love of God that he has poured out through Christ. And um, I wanted to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 13, because I think that um, this is also essential as we wrestle through some of these matters. So in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, uh, common passage here, but we read that love never ends. As for prophecy, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And Paul um, is reminding us that there's a sense in which we look at these things and it is like looking through a mirror dimly. But there will come a day when we look upon Christ face to face. His return means his physical presence with his people and his coming will mean the glorification of all things, whether your, your view was at prior to that, a dispensational view or not. Uh, at that point, at the return of Christ, we will all be brought into perfect unity. And Paul says that our understanding at that point will, be, will, will make our previous understanding look childish. He's saying that in the same way that a child has a very limited um, amount of reasoning and, and behavior, that when they become a man, they, they give up some of those things. He said, in the same way, when the perfect comes, we will not know in part, but we shall know fully as we've been fully known. And, and I think there's an element in which we have to wrestle through these matters, realizing that there is this knowing in part. It is like pushing your face against the glass, longing to see more clearly, longing to, to have a better understanding. But until the perfect comes, until Christ himself returns and we look upon him face to face, our knowledge will be restricted. It will be childish in that sense. And that's not to say we don't press against the glass and seek to learn. We do. We keep learning and growing. We're renewed day by day in the knowledge of Christ through the word. And we, we want to grow in these things. But we will um, not experience the perfect until Christ comes. And so let us abide in the love of Christ, in the way we interact, in the way that we speak to one another, um, and in the way that we approach these matters let us do so humbly and with much grace. So we'll close there for this morning. And uh, I hope we can have some further discussions. Like I said, I will try to share a link so you could kind of pull up those, uh, the information again. Maybe you want to look over it. And, and uh, like I said, I'm sure a lot of that's quite new to, to many. Some of it was very new to me as well. But um, just wanting to try and highlight where some of those differences are and where there are also common ground. So uh, let us go to Lord in prayer as we close this morning and then we'll have a song together.
Lord God, we, we do come before you, and Lord, we realize that uh, we are, Lord, um, all of us influenced by our own upbringings, Lord, by um, the things that we were taught, and our understandings of the world, and of your word, Lord, and, and uh, none of us have a, a perfect knowledge on all these matters, Lord, that we, um, Lord, are, are just continually looking to you to expand our mind, expand our thinking, we do give you thanks for what has been made plain, Lord, the, the means of salvation in Christ alone through his death and resurrection, Lord, the, the call that is upon us to, to live this out in our day-to-day lives, God, and to um, abide richly in the fullness of what Christ has brought, the, the dwelling of your spirit, that we are brought into your family as sons and daughters, Lord, Jew and Gentile alike, as we were reminded from Colossians, we we thank you for these things and the, the, the clear, um, Lord, instruction that you give on the essentials of the Christian faith. And as we wrestle with other matters, Lord, that um, maybe seem more secondary, but we know they do have implications. They do um, change the, the way we maybe understand the end of the, the world, Lord, the, the way we um, Lord, behave as a church and, and the, the way in which we uh, practice the covenant signs of the new covenant. Lord, we, we know that all these things are important. And so help us not to brush them off as irrelevant or just, uh, Lord, too high and lofty for us to consider, but that we would um, seek to learn and understand to your glory and to your praise and for the unity and the upbuilding of your body, Lord, that we would be a people, um, Lord, that are, are united and, uh, Lord, we can richly together enjoy uh, Christ and, and all of his benefits towards us. And we do pray as well for many of these teachers and leaders that we respect and look up to, whether it's someone like John MacArthur and the, the great ministry which you've given, Lord, that, they, that he would continue to just walk humbly before your word. We think of um, men like Paul Washer and Bodhi Bakum also with great influence. We, we pray that they too just walk humbly and dependent upon you, God, and uh, as well for... Um, Lord, others, whether it be um, Alistair Bank or think of uh, Ligon Duncan, many of these men, Doug Wilson, Father, that, uh, that would, would take a little different view as well. We, we pray that they also would just walk in humility and grace before you and that through all of these ministries and through our very lives, Christ would go forth to the nations and, Father, that we uh, may together rejoice with all the saints and and uh, Lord, just know that, that your promises are yes and amen in Christ. So we pray you bless our time this afternoon, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church, or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.